Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Today, the reality of Venezuela. I'll be speaking with author and journalist Fred Fuentes. The 40th anniversary of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University with Dr. Ralph Newmark, who is a part of the Latin American Update program here on 3CR as well. A march happened last month from the US to the Mexican border and from Mexico to the US border with both sides protesting against the expulsions of Latinos into Mexico by the Obama administration. I'll be speaking with Buddy Bell, who's a, who was on the march, and he's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Also, American fascism, past and present, with author and historian Brian McKinlay. But first... Mr. Kevin Healy, and let's see what he's been doing in the past week. A week, Jane, listener, when two weeks ago, sadly, we reported dear baby Jesus family fast Senator Bob Deity had resigned. Then last week, happily, we reported the good news that Deity hadn't resigned after all because he needed to be around to ensure the evil unions got crushed. But sadly, this week, we have to report he's gone again. Parliamentary democracy won't be the same. And we'll come back shortly to discuss Bob's major achievements are over and above sending heaps of people broke. But first, also a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunnock-Bull and our giant mind minister for concentration camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, triumphantly announced not one no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat person would ever, ever, ever set foot on true soil. Bit of a surprise, because we thought that was the caring business class and socialist policy ever, ever, ever. Oh, so cleverly backdated to 2013. What clever little Machiavellians they are. Backdated to 2013 when the Socialist Party also declared no criminal asylum seeker, and let's face it, in true seeking asylum is a crime. They declare them illegal. Yet the long-haired Tommy, goody, goody, greeny, black armband, wooden working and iron lots persist in claiming that under the UN of the US of the UN of the World Refugee Convention, they are not illegal. What would they know? 2013 Socialist Party also declared they would never set foot in. This legislation is ludicrous. It is ridiculous. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Short and Ambition retorted convincingly. Uh, but, but, but they backdated it to when it was your policy, when it wasn't ludicrous or ridiculous. So now that it is, you'll oppose it. At this, little Billy sucked his finger and held it to the wind. There's ridiculous and there's ridiculous, he saged. Well, well, it sounded wise, although we've got no idea what it meant. Anything to add, little Billy? Yes, there's ludicrous and there's ludicrous. Mmm, deep, deep. 
not the long-haired lot making the ludicrous and ridiculous claim that the government is contravening the UN of convention, the minister for blaming the socialists for everything evil, everything evil, Matthias Rotten to that, that's everything evil, not Matthias, quickly scotched that, declaring it did not contravene the convention. We have legal advice. Is that George Brandy's brain's advice? Yes, he's our number one legal mind. Uh, so do you know what the actual legal legal position is? Uh, no idea. Peter Duffer adopted his deepest thinking expression, identical to his deepest non-thinking expression, and told us the criminals on Nauru and Manus Island could go anywhere they liked. Well, like True Blue Aussie, Pete. Anywhere they like except True Blue Aussie. They have no right to come here. Say Afghans, for instance, so we too can't just go there. We have to go there to defend them. Uh, from whom, Pete? Uh, from, like, you know, Afghans. But, Pete, Pete, you say the refugees, correction, criminals, illegals, whatever. When people you don't want near the razor wire try to go there to see what's going on, you say the concentration camps are matters for Nauru and PNG and have nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. So why are we passing laws about them? Huh? Uh, Malcolm! In one interview, no embellishment, Pete did say boats were still trying to get here and being turned around. No one in the press gallery thought to ask whether that meant people were dying at sea, but never mind their only refugees, including at least one boat where the refugees said they were heading for New Zealand and True Blue Aussie train killers turned them around. I was waiting for someone in the excited media throng to ask the obviously naive question, who gave True Blue Aussie the right to stop people going to New Zealand? Obviously naive, because no one asks and the comment has sunk without trace. And top marks and congratulations to Malcolm for picking up the Sensitivity of the Week Award. Surrounded by all these terra nullius people during a You Must Learn to Become Like Us tour of terra nullius communities, declaring, Malcolm that is, with jingoistic righteousness, uh, sorry, righteousness, we are the ones who must decide who can come here. And the people he was patronising must have thought, wish we'd thought of that. Malcolm, your Sensitivity of the Week Award is on its way. Don't know why Pete and Malcolm and little Billy and the team remind me of this, but with all this carrying on going on about certain Polly's eligibility, heard one government minister declare, only those with the highest integrity can sit in Parliament, and, and thought, that's political suicide. There, there wouldn't be one left. But poor Bob. But to his credit, he doesn't leave empty-handed, unlike his clients and contractors. More correctly, he won't be empty-handed if he can manage to get his caring business class act together again, as he has talked the government into training the workers he will not pay in his next round of not paying workers. And to explain that, Bob lobbied for a grant to this training college he chaired and where he is still a director. As a result, handed two mil of our hard-earned to train building industry apprentices at public expense, allowing construction companies and developers to get on with their core business of not paying workers trained at public expense and ripping off clients and ensuring evil unions and workers are prosecuted if they raise uncomfortable and irrelevant issues like the odd safety problem.
So good on you, Bob, for acknowledging there is a small role for the inefficient public sector, unlike the super-efficient private sector as represented by your own corporate empire, making the Italian earthquakes look like a harmless little vibration. And speaking of the highest integrity, private colleges like Bob's have such an envied reputation for integrity. Further speaking of, speaking of, that exemplar of impeccable PR, Nightmare World, admitted Monday it had stuffed things up a bit Sunday, but would fix that up. And then Tuesday said it had stuffed things up Monday, but would make amends. And then Wednesday conceded it had stuffed things up Tuesday, but, would, uh, but then finally promised, we plan to rebuild your trust. Probably for the best, for that must mean they intend to close down altogether. That would win our trust. Part of the PR bullions handed this huge $800,000 bonus to its CEO and caring person that she is, she gave a bit of it to the families of the company's victims. A really smart company might have waited till the dust settled, but then she was a former editor of the Women's Weekly, so she'd have no idea of PR. And they said the obscene bonus was for the good things she did over the whole year and not for killing its customers. That settled that. On reputable sources of news, information and knowledge, like the Women's Weekly, which happens to be a monthly, must take issue with those people who were critical of Lord Rupert of Wapping and the media baron team this week after, after for two and a half years and two years to go, almost daily coverage of great patriotic moments a hundred years ago in the great war that sculpted the values that make true blue true blue Invasion, slaughter, misery, psychiatric disaster and all those other related admirable national values. Because how could they celebrate the centenary of people voting not to support the slaughter of conscripted youth when there's no opportunity to dredge up a couple of cute eight-year-olds in slouch hats, whack a few medals on their chests and have them tell us how proud they are of their great-great-great-grandfathers of the freedoms we enjoy because we invaded Turkey a hundred years ago in a military debacle. You couldn't have kids tossing the sacred slouch hat to the ground and stomping on precious metals, so I'm on Lord Rupert's side in this case. It was impossible to report. Or perhaps he's saving up for a mass coverage of the centenary of the second referendum. And there were far more pressing national issues. US up voters shaking with anticipation at the exciting choice. Lloyd Squillians winning another Melbourne Cup. Those horses, those squillions off the backs of the blood, sweat, tears, death, injury of evil building workers in the pockets of problem gamblers at the Crook Casino, now run by the scion of Lloyd's great close, close friend, the sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, street boxing champ Jamie Kid Puker, and Jamie's own sad split with Mariah. Don't we all feel for them? And Lord Rupert reported, quoting a reliable friend of Mariah's, the split was down to Mariah being a traditional girl who doesn't believe in sex before marriage. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. The source telling us they made out plenty but never sealed the deal. <laughs> doesn't make it any easier for us, though. But how could a nation rejecting the slaughter of its youth compete with that?
Finally, as our highest polluting power station is set to close, governments have been grilled over what they plan to do. You're not doing enough. The trillions of the public purse have come up with are not enough for the affected workers and communities who do clearly need a transition plan but, as the super-efficient private owners scurry off to Paris or New York or Singapore or wherever, loaded with their bags of profit, how come cleaning up their social and environmental responsibilities lies fairly and squarely with the bloated, inefficient hand of the public purse? It is the silly, naive question, René Leblotet explained. That is the role of the public purse. Of course. Good afternoon. And you didn't know that he could speak French, did you? But that's Mr Kevin Healy. And he'll be back on deck 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. The election in the US seems to have overshadowed events and situations in other countries and one in particular is Venezuela where the US has used covert and overt means to destabilise the government for many years. This morning I spoke with journalist and author Fred Fuentes and asked him first about the mainstream media positioning Venezuela as a country in economic crisis. Is that a true picture? I think that there, as with anything that the media reports, has to be some element of truth. And there's no doubt that there is a a very serious economic situation facing Venezuela today. However, I would add to that, as is almost always the case with the media, uh, that firstly, it is greatly exaggerated to the extent of how deep this crisis is. And thirdly, that the media plays an important role in distorting the origins of this crisis. So the media narrative is that essentially Venezuela is descended into an economic crisis where no one can get access to food and medicine basically because of an authoritarian regime, uh, and that's essentially where it limits its uh, exploration for the situation too. But the real reality is that much more complex than that and has very little, anything to do at all, with some supposed uh, anti-democratic nature of the Nicolas Maduro government. The reality is that under first Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela experienced some of the largest economic growth, had some of the biggest expansions in food consumption, had some of the biggest drops in poverty rates, uh, not just in Venezuelan history, but in, in certainly in terms of Latin America as well. So there's been some extremely important gains that have occurred over this period, none of which the media are willing to, to recognise and instead pretend that somehow overnight this, this crisis was created. But the reality is that in order to understand why Venezuelan people are facing such a difficult situation today, it's important to understand that the Venezuelan government and the revolution that's been leading, the Bolivarian Revolution, has been coming under sustained attack now, uh, essentially since day one that Chavez was elected in 1998. It's already had to overcome attempted military coups, attempts to shut down its oil industry, which again had at that point in time, which was at the end of 2002, 2003, a dramatic impact on economic growth in the country. The 
country's GDP shrank by about 25% in, in one quarter, and now uh, has been facing an, an ongoing, basically, you know, what, what has been commonly referred to as economic warfare being waged by private companies that are deliberately underproducing, hoarding stock, sending it over the border as contraband uh, in order to, to sort of uh, help stoke discontent amongst the Venezuelan population and help the media in being able to create this image of a, of a failed state in Venezuela, one that bears no real resemblance to what has been occurring uh, in Venezuela for the last 15 to 20 years. What has the government done to control the supply of food and, and the basics for people if you've got these business people trying to sabotage it? How can they overcome that? Yeah, well, the government has been attempting to take a number of steps uh, in this direction. Uh, firstly, that uh, now for, for a number of years, the government has continued to basically have a policy towards the uh, food production and distribution industry uh, sector, essentially saying that you're, if you are happy to participate and produce for the country, uh, then the government is more than willing to help you. Uh, however, if you're going to act to sabotage and not help meet the needs of the people, that the government is willing to step in and, and take over the running of these sections of industry. So throughout the last 10 years or so, the government has been steadily increasing state control and ownership over uh, different sections of food production, land ownership and redistribution of land to uh, small, small farmers to be able to begin to produce as well. Also, along with the sort of increased state ownership uh, in sections of food production and distribution, we've seen more recently initiatives by the government such as the creation of the local action uh, committees that are essentially there or referred to as the, the CLAP, essentially there to help distribute uh, food. So what happens is that food that is uh, imported uh, by the government is redistributed to these committees and these committees have the jobs of basically going door to door delivering uh, food packages, you know, prioritising those families that are most in need of being able to get access to, to basic goods. This is another mechanism that where the government is working hand-in-hand hand with the community uh, in order to tackle some of these uh, sabotage uh, that the uh, private sector um, has been carrying out. Having said all that, there is still a, a, long, a long way to go, a lot of challenges the government has to face, and perhaps the, in some ways the biggest challenge it faces is the uh, ongoing dilemma of what to do with its currency controls. And the currency controls have, since day one, been very important uh, firstly, for halting the flight of capital outside of the country, they essentially were introduced in the first place because private industry was trying to take so much dollars outside of the country that in order to put a halt to it, the government introduced these currency controls. But the currency controls also mean that because the government has a monopoly on access to dollars, it also has an important control over who, who gets to import and how it's imported. Unfortunately, this system has been manipulated, uh, misused, private sector has used it in order to basically enrich itself uh, rather than actually import to meet the needs of the people. And this is, you know, obviously, uh, un this would be unable to have been uh, accomplished without some level of uh, existing corruption uh, within the, the state bureaucracy involved with, with this uh, currency control programs, and particularly the, the old organisation, uh, Cadive, which was responsible for this. Uh, so what we've seen is that the government has to try to rationalise its current currency control situation, but in ensuring that it doesn't return basically back to a free market situation that it had before, which would certainly see private industry attempt to suction out all of the dollars outside of the Venezuelan economy in order to, to bring it down and with that the, the Maduro government. 
Is this connected with the higher level of inflation? Well, the high level of inflation has a you know, there's a lot of factors that have been impacted on that in Venezuela, and it should it should be noted that one factor, for instance, that is very rarely mentioned when talked about inflation is that it's quite common for oil producing countries to suffer as a result of the of the impacts of the oil it has in its economy. One of its side effects is a high level of inflation. So, for example, whilst today the media go on about uh, the record levels of inflation for Venezuela today. What they almost never mention that is actually that in the 90s, the average rate of inflation in Venezuela was higher than it was under the time of Chavez and Maduro as an average taken over that same period. So, as I said, inflation has been an, uh, an affliction that has impacted on the Venezuelan economy now for, for, well, for, for, for decades and is, is nothing particularly new. However, it, you know, it is a serious problem. The currency controls play a role uh, in the level of inflation because essentially what we see is a system whereby whilst the currency controls have the bolivar, the local currency, pegged at a certain rate, most of the private industry are essentially using US dollars to then import and sell produce at the black market rate, which is substantially high given that the, the difficulty of accessing US dollars, are, this generally leads to the creation of a black market. The black market rate is you know, hovering, you know, I haven't checked the last time, but, you know, it's certainly, you know, tens, if not, you know, a hundred times more than the, than the official rate. So products are being sold at a dramatically overpriced uh, level. Uh, and this is, of course, you know, pushing up prices just generally across the board and contributing to inflation in Venezuela. How significant is the role of the overseas credit agencies? Well, they've been playing a big role in essentially uh, undermining the Venezuelan economy continually, essentially, you know, because at the end of the day, they, these credit institutions, agencies, yeah, they're, they're unelected, unaccountable bodies who you know, essentially give out credit ratings based on, you know, whatever they determine to be useful at, at that particular time. So for a long time now, they've been essentially having decided that they disagree with the economic policies of, of the Venezuelan government, uh, despite the fact that, as I mentioned in the first question, under Chavez, we, you know, we saw some of the, the most important economic growth uh, that Venezuela has experienced in its history, and, and not just economic growth that uh, benefited uh, you know, the economy, but also that you know, the benefited reach to the, the poorest sections of society. Uh, these policies you know, are not the ones that are generally tolerated by the credit agencies, and so they've used this to essentially you know, declare that you know, Venezuela is unsafe for investment, Venezuela is not a place where private industry should go, and so of course all of this contributes to the economic sabotage that's occurring, the lack of investment uh, that's flowing in, into Venezuela, and sort of feeding into creating the image of you know, essentially a failed state, uh, one that bears no real resemblance to what has actually been occurring in Venezuela for the last 15 to 20 years. I'd imagine that the, the middle class and the wealthy are still living the life that they normally did before the, the revolution. Well, look, obviously for, for some of them, you know, their, their situation has changed in the sense that you know, um, those that have been unwilling to essentially you know, comply with the law in Venezuela, who have been unwilling to, to essentially be part of a, the project uh, that the majority of Venezuelans have agreed to, um, and have instead used their economic power to try to sabotage the process underway in Venezuela. Well, some of them have lost some of their economic power. What we're also seeing is that many, for instance, middle-class people are quite unhappy about the fact that uh, you know, they believe that as a middle-class they were the rightful inheritors of, of power, of positions of power, of jobs in the state oil industry, of uh, positions in university, uh, but that they've seen this, this sort of... Uh, 
you know, come under threat in, in inverted commas um, because under the, the Chavez the Maduro government, you know, poor sections of society for the first time have access to to these uh, positions that um, would, they were generally excluded from, have access to universities, have access to uh, positions in the state bureaucracy, have access to elected positions in power, have access to, to the oil industry. So many of them have, have been threatened by that as well. Um, but having said that, you know, it's very easy uh, to go into Caracas and find very opulent, very rich suburbs, gated communities. So this is, you know, it's not a situation where all of a sudden the rich have been plunged into poverty and destitution. Extreme wealth uh, continues to exist in Venezuela. Uh, it's very, very open, very in your face, and it's not, I think, a surprise that most of the opposition protests tend to basically uh, be located in the municipalities where these sections of society uh, uh, reside. So, obviously, we've got a, a socialist revolution, but capitalism is still there in Venezuela. It hasn't disappeared. Oh, absolutely, and, and no-one would disagree with that. I, I mean, I, you know, Chavez, uh, before he died in the election program that he put forward uh, for his election campaign in October 2012, uh, explicitly said that, that whilst the, the Bolivarian Revolution, whilst the, the Socialist Party of Venezuela, whilst the, the Chavez government had, has set as its, its objective 21st century revolution, they're very clear in acknowledging they had got um, very little in, in that direction or they still had a long way to go, that at best what they had done, had begun to do was to begin to assert some level of national sovereignty, began to regain control of some of its natural resources and perhaps, you know, began to experiment, began to take tentative steps in a, in a kind of a post-capitalist or an anti-capitalist direction, but that much, much was still left to be done, which I think also, you know, basically goes to to disprove the lie in the, in the media uh, that, you know, Venezuela's problem is that, oh, it's got too much socialism. The, the real reality is, is it's quite the opposite. And Venezuela's problem is that it still continues to br- uh, bring with it it's a lot of baggage of, of the capitalist uh, system that's been, you know, well-established in Venezuela now for, for many decades. What Venezuela needs is not uh, more, more capitalism, more of what got it here in the first place, but more socialism. What about the support from other Latin American countries, and including Cuba, and, and on the other side, opposition from countries bordering? Yeah, what I, I would say the biggest factor that is sort of, um, you know, in terms of regional politics that is affecting the level of solidarity and support that Venezuela might have from other countries in the region has really been uh, the change of governments that have occurred in, uh, firstly, Brazil where as a result of a parliamentary coup, uh, the Workers' Party candidate or presidential Dilma Rousseff, she was removed from power and a right-wing vice president was installed. And also uh, in Argentina as well, we saw a change of government uh, via elections from a, a more pro-Chavez or more pro-Venezuela government that was there before under Cristina Kirchner to one that's you know, certainly been more willing to be confrontational and and attack uh, Venezuela now under under Mauricio Macri. With these changing governments in Brazil, the largest country by far in, in South America and Argentina, the second largest, uh, has had a, a real impact in sort of shifting, I suppose, the balance of forces uh, in the region. And we've seen that expressed in, in a number of different ways. We've seen that, for instance, expressed in the attempts to uh, basically push back uh, Venezuela's um, membership in Mercosur, the regional trade block in, in South America, where over the last years, Venezuela had essentially gone from being outside the bloc to being an observer to becoming a full member and was at the point of essentially presiding, uh, becoming the president of the trade bloc as part of the, the rotation system that established. But now he's facing a pushback where it's been 
blocked from being able to take that presidency and he's now, you know, an attempt to basically push Venezuela out of, out of this trade bloc. And we've also seen it with the organisation of American states where the General Secretary has been playing a much more vocal role, denouncing uh, and calling for some sort of, you know, sanctions or intervention against Venezuela. And whereas previously there was pretty much a unanimous rejection of, of these kind of declarations, uh, we're now seeing you know, a much more divided voice uh, in South America. Uh, having said that, there are still a number of countries that continue to support uh, Venezuela or, or, or at very minimum, uh, you know, are not speaking out, uh, criticising the, the Venezuelan government or, or maintaining a stance that the, the, the way forward is dialogue between the, the two sides. Obviously, the, the strongest support comes from countries like Cuba and Bolivia, uh, which for a long time now have been working very closely, part of the, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our Americas, the, the ALBA project. Uh, but also, you know, Colombia in all this has, has played quite an interesting role, uh, certainly since Juan Manuel Santos has, has been, was, was elected in the last elections. We, you know, it should be noted that Venezuela has played an important role in the, in the whole peace negotiations that have been occurring uh, in Colombia. The, the two countries have, under Santos, attempted to maintain much more friendly relationships. So there, whilst, you know, certainly there are ideological differences between the two governments, you know, there's been much more muted sort of criticism coming coming from Colombia and, and much more an expression of support for kind of dialogue and, and peace in, in the region, uh, which is which is quite a, a sharp change from what was occurring under the previous government of Alvaro Uribe, who's always been much more willing to, to speak out and continues to do so to this day of, of denouncing Venezuela, of calling for greater US intervention in the region uh, in order to basically bring down the, the then Chavez and now Maduro government. Does the US have sanctions against Venezuela at the moment? The US doesn't have sanctions against Venezuela as a country, but it has implemented sanctions and threatened to implement more sanctions on specific state officials. Of course, this, this can have uh, important ramifications in terms of certain uh, ministers, uh, heads of the military or whatever, are unable to travel to the US for meetings uh, because, you know, essentially threats of arrest or because of sanctions that are being placed in terms of seizure of property, uh, things like that. So perhaps, yeah, but, you know, whilst there, there are not specific sanctions on, on trade uh, with Venezuela, what we have is sanctions on, st on state officials. And of course, the decree by Obama two years ago, which was renewed again this year, essentially declaring that Venezuela is a threat to US national security. And of course, once we know that once the US has declared anything a threat to its national security, that you know, essentially uh, it's saying that anything, nothing is off limits in terms of how it might be willing to respond. And how does he justify Venezuela being a threat to the US? That's precisely the question that many have been asking. How, how can a country that, you know, has probably been in, you know, well, not probably, has almost certainly been involved in more interventions, coups, military invasions, uh, you know, threatening the national security of basically any country, every country that has existed uh, in the last century? how this could, uh, you know, decide that Venezuela is in some way a threat to its national security is sort of uh, beyond the, you know, some to the point of ridiculous, really. Obama has sort of somehow tried to justify it by saying that the wording is, is just sort of a textbook sort of cut-and-paste wording for these kind of decrees when, when sanctions on state officials are, are put in place. But this, this is really just a cop-out. Uh, you know, we, we know that really, you know, the US do see Venezuela as a threat. Uh, and, you know, in some ways... If we really wanted to argue, well, how, how could we see Venezuela as a threat to the US? Well, I think in many ways it's, it's the threat of the good example. That's the real threat that Venezuela poses for the US. 
the threat that, you know, an alternative to the U.S. is possible. And, you know, when we look at the U.S. elections and the, the kind of options that are being put on uh, the, the plate for the U.S. citizens, we can kind of understand why people might be looking elsewhere for some kind of alternative. And in this scenario, you know, Venezuela, for a long time, you know, obviously understanding that today it finds itself in a very difficult situation, a lot of complex situation, but for many years now has been a strong inspirational you know, hope uh, for, for people not just in Venezuela but all over the world and including in the US. The referendum recall has been put on hold. Can you explain what the recall referendum means? Yeah, so it, essentially according to Venezuelan constitution and legislation. Yeah, and it should be noted that Venezuela is one of probably three or four countries in the world that have this democratic in- mechanism in place. There's mechanism that enables citizens to be able to recall all elected officials up to the point of and including the head of state, the president. This has been used previously in Venezuela. The opposition tried it when Hugo Chavez was in power in 2004 to convoke a recall referendum. They went through the the set uh, mechanisms, the set requirements in order to initiate this process. But in the end, Chavez was successfully uh, re-elected or, you know, his mandate was was reaffirmed uh, in the referendum by quite a large margin. Opposition, or at least a section of the opposition, have decided once again to try and undertake the the process of calling a a recall referendum. The first initial step is that they needed to get 1% of the signatures across all of the sort of different municipalities of the country, uh, indicating that there was uh, support for such a recall referendum. This required somewhere in the vicinity of about you know, a couple of hundred thousand signatures. Uh, in the end, they actually ended up handing over you know, well, you know, a couple of million uh, signatures instead. Many question why, given that they only needed a couple of hundred thousand, they decided to submit something like two million or three million, uh, which in the end, you know, many of which were proven to be basically falsified signatures, many of which people claimed were essentially put in there to try to stymie the whole process because, of course, the National Electoral Council would have to ratify all of these signatures uh, and consume a lot of time in a context where the opposition was supposedly wanting this process to move forward uh, much more quickly in order to get, to get rid of Maduro. The end result, essentially, of the first stage was that whilst this, the National Electoral Council they deemed that enough signatures had been collected to reach the, the benchmark to move on to stage two of the process. It was also noted that quite a lot of signatures were fraudulent. This was uh, a finding that was also backed up by the opposition observers of the petition, so there was no one that criticised this. Everyone essentially accepted the ruling that, on the one hand, enough official signatures had been collected, but, however, it was very clear that there was irregularities that had occurred. This was allowed this it allowed it to move on to the second stage, where now the opposition were required to get 20% of the signatures uh, across the different municipalities around the country. And in the midst of the process of this collection of signatures, a number of local courts uh, ruled that they believed that because of the fraudulent signatures that had been collected in the first round, that they did not feel that the 1% of signatures had been reached in their specific municipality, so where they have you know, sort of jurisdiction over. This, as a result, forced the National Electoral Council to have to put a halt to this process. So it's only a temporary halt. It's certainly not a situation where the recall referendum has been completely stopped or that it's been reverted back to, to step one or that, uh, or that it's not going to be able to go ahead. 
but that they have to accept the jurisdiction of these local courts and see what happens in terms of the different cases that are being put forward there in terms of, of the irregularities. Once that is resolved, and I, I don't know, you know how that will be resolved and in, in whose favour or not it will be resolved, but I, I would imagine that it's quite likely that that will be resolved somewhat similarly to how the first stage of the signatures collection process was resolved. That is, you know, it will be accepted by all parties that fraud did occur in the collection of signatures. However, it will also be accepted that, you know, enough, enough official signatures were collected to allow the process to continue, uh, in which case we'll see the stage two start again and where the opposition will have to collect those, as I said, somewhat, somewhere in the vicinity of 20% of uh, registered voters on a petition. Uh, in each of the municipalities uh, in order to, uh, by that point, uh, go towards a recall referendum. You've pointed out that it's a fairly complicated system and a very time-consuming and, I imagine, costly system. The opposition would have to have a pretty good reasons for recall. Well, I mean, obviously the, the opposition have wanted to get rid of Chavez and Maduro, you know, for the last 15 to, to 20 years. Yeah, but you've got, um, to have, you know, got to have proof of whatever, haven't you, to have a recall? Well, all you have to do is prove that a, a certain percentage of the uh, of the population wants to have someone removed from power, uh, even though the they won the last election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this the uh, this is the this is the fact. This is uh, the, the the kind of democratic sort of credentials of the supposed authoritarian regime, where despite the fact that you know Maduro won the last elections, clearly won the last elections, no no one uh, rejected those results, no one declared them to be fraudulent, neither the opposition nor the the international observers. So. It's, it's well recognised that Nicolas Maduro fairly won the elections uh, in 2013 and, in, and as such his, his mandate should take him uh, to, to the end of 2018. However, having, having said that, the, um, the Constitution, which I should add is a constitution that was democratically decided upon, it was one where delegates were elected from all over the country, pro and, and, you know, and anti-Chavez delegates who debated the content together with you know, different committees that were set up all over the country to discuss different aspects of the Constitution. Uh, this Constitution, once drafted, was then put to a referendum and was overwhelmingly approved by voters. And it's that Constitution that sets out the, the democratic right of, of people to be able to revoke the mandates of officials who they believe uh, have not complied with what they are elected to do. Uh, obviously, in the current situation in Venezuela, there continues to be an important segment of the population who don't support Nicolas Maduro, and they have the, the you know, thankfully they have the, the democratic right and the, the legislation in place to be able to remove or at least attempt to remove Maduro via you know electoral democratic means, ones that are you know certainly not allowed to us here in Australia, uh, where no matter what politicians do, we have literal or nothing that we can do at least certainly electorally democratically in terms of revoking their mandates until uh, a new election. So that's, that's, that's the mechanism that the opposition is using, one that's a mechanism that's under place only because of the revolution that's been occurring, only because of the democratic sort of credentials, the, the democratic vision the Bolivarian revolution has, has for Venezuela. And as I said, it's one that the opposition have, have already used, tried to use before against Chavez, although at that time were unsuccessful. Tell me about the Vatican's involvement in the politics of Venezuela. Well, look, I, essentially, I, you know, uh, the government uh, has constantly uh, expressed its willingness to try and sit down with the opposition and you know, try to have a dialogue on, on this situation, try to resolve how the two sides, you know, always obviously understanding that there are important political differences. You know, no, no one's shying away from the fact that there are, there are clear political, ideological differences between the two sides. 
However, there are, you know, perhaps some, some points of agreement can be reached in order to try and help lift the country out of the, the current situation it's in. It's in this context that the Vatican has offered itself perhaps a kind of a mediator. It's a role that the, the government uh, certainly has uh, been willing to accept. Uh, and it's wonderful that the, the opposition is a bit divided on. You know, some sections are willing to, to enter into a dialogue uh, with the government, particularly one that they feel is going to be a, perhaps a, a bit more uh, fruitful, given that it's been mediated by, by an outside sort of observer. But there are other sections of the opposition who made it very clear that they're not interested in dialogue, or at least for them, dialogue starts with the removal of the Maduro government. It's only once, once Maduro is gone that any genuine dialogue can occur, according to them. So the opposition are having to decide how they deal with the, the, the sort of talks that are currently underway. There's been some initial discussions, but I, I imagine, given the, the deep level of divisions that exist, uh, the deep polarisation that exists and the, and the deep problems that exist in Venezuela, you know, it will take more than one or two days of, of discussion to be able to come, come up with a, a fruitful solution. And, and ultimately, I think as, as many have discussed, that perhaps the real dialogue that needs to be occurring is not just between the, the government and opposition parties, but also a real dialogue with the people as well to see how together with the people uh, they can help overcome the, the serious situation Venezuela is facing today. It seems likely that Clinton was going to win the presidency in the next few hours. Will her policies be any different from Obama? I think, if anything, they'll probably be more hawkish. And this is in a, in a context where, as I said, Obama has already declared Venezuela to be a, a threat to U.S. national security. It's in a context where Venezuela is certainly... Uh, sorry, where the Obama regime has certainly not shied away from you know, publicly attacking the Venezuelan government and is certainly not shied away from having a, a very active role uh, in the region. And, you know, Clinton was Secretary of State, you know, when the coup in Honduras occurred and, you know, played an active role in, in supporting that coup that occurred in Honduras. So I think, if, if anything, we're going to see a worsening of the situation if Hillary Clinton is to become the, the next president of the United States, a, a further deterioration, a further escalation of the attacks from the US against Venezuela. And Trump, does he know where Venezuela is? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, you know I, I, probably, I imagine he's someone, one of his advisors might have mentioned it to him, but um, I think, you know, I think it's, you know, Trump is just such a, such a liability uh, that who, who knows what, what could happen with him in power. But we certainly, you know... Uh, if Hillary's a danger to, to Venezuela, then Trump is, uh, if anything, you know, just as much, if not more, a danger. Well, we haven't got long to wait, have we? Oh, I don't think too many people are holding their breath around here, but a lot of other people around the world certainly are. It's 4.42 and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Freedom and safety are two of the most important values shared by our community. As the largest independent human rights organisation for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre delivers more services on the ground and more free hours of support to where it's needed most. A donation of $20 to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides two weeks of food for a family over the holiday season. Please donate now at asrc.org.au or call 1300-DONATE. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a proud 3CR supporter. Celebrate International Day of People with Disabilities, all day Saturday, 3rd of December, with 3CR. 
The word disability is so broad now and it's come so far. There's so much ability within disability these days. Join us from 12 to 4pm for local news and views from the city of Yarra. A special report published by the American Immigration Council in July 2015 included the following. The United States is in the midst of a great expulsion of immigrants, both lawfully present and unauthorised, who tend to be non-violent and non-threatening and who often have deep roots in this country. This relentless campaign of deportation is frequently justified as a war against illegality, which is to say against unauthorised immigrants. But that justification does not come close to explaining the banishment from the United States of lawful permanent residents who committed traffic offences and who have US-based families. Nor does it explain the lack of due process rights according to so many of the immigrants ensnared in deportation proceedings. Likewise, the wave of deportations we are currently witnessing is often betrayed as a crime-fighting tool. But as the findings of this report make clear, the majority of deportees carried out in the United States each year do not actually target criminals in any meaningful sense of the word. Buddy Bell, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, took part in a march to the Mexican border with the group Veterans for Peace and also members of the School of American Watch last month, which after a long delay were permitted to enter Mexico, where they joined a group of US veterans who had been deported to Mexico, members of Dreamer Mums International, the Mesoamerica Migrant Movement and by other solidarity activists on both sides of the border. The border where Donald Trump would like to construct a great wall as part of his promise to deport 11 million undocumented migrants, which he hopes will galvanise the white middle-class base behind his White House bid. When I spoke to Buddy recently, I asked him about his knowledge of the circumstances and his support for migrants from south of the US border, which goes back a long time to when he was a teenager, in fact. When I was 18 years old, I moved to California from the Midwest. I did work in a number of jobs where I was interacting with co-workers who had come from Mexico. I worked in a gas station first, and then I also worked in a restaurant where I met several people who would take me uh, as a guest to Mexico. Later on, when I moved back to Chicago, uh, I met a particular co-worker who I got to know very well, and I got to know her three children. At that time, she has had a fourth since, but she, in particular, crossed the border in the Arizona desert, which I had heard about only sort of in theory, and I had never heard of anyone specifically doing it. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about that journey. And so a couple of years later, I went to Arizona, was part of an organization called No More Deaths. And what No More Deaths does is they go out into the 
area near the border where many people, many migrants are crossing illegally into the United States and we go out and put water on the trails because hundreds of people each year die in the attempts to get to the United States. So no more deaths exist to be out there and providing water and food to people that we encounter and in some cases providing medical care because there are nurses that are trained among the groups. Although I myself am not a nurse, we were able to give some basic medical care like bandaging feet, things like that. My experience in southern Arizona sort of made it a lot more personal for me because I knew someone personally who had been through the desert and I was able to go there and see what it was like and also be part of a part of a movement that is trying to alleviate some of the dangers, although it is only a very small drop in the bucket. What becomes bigger is the fact that such a campaign exists and can be a mobilizer for public opinion to try to change U.S. policy on immigration. Can you describe what those people go through to get into the United States? When migrants come to the United States, if they're coming across the border in the sort of area where I was. If they're coming from Mexico, they're already near the U.S., but they may be coming from, and increasingly people are coming from countries farther south than Mexico. So they've already crossed a few borders, perhaps. And in Mexico, they are dealing with uh, a lot of dangers, including people who will try to exploit them. People who are trying to cross on the trains, they can be caught by Mexican police and deported from Mexico. They can be robbed by gang members. When they get to the border with the U.S., they can be tricked into giving their money to a guide who will cross them over the border. Even if the guide is legitimate in terms of it, he's really going to lead a group across the border, then there's the danger of once a crossing is accomplished, a migrant may be trapped in a house in the United States uh, waiting for more payment from that person's family to the guide and essentially held captive in a house. During the crossing, there's also the, in addition to what you might think of in terms of risk of dying of thirst, risk of snake bite, falling, breaking limbs, things like this, there's also the risk for especially women of being raped by members of the group that are crossing or by the guide, and there's also the risk of theft. People who are slow are, are often left behind. In the place where I was, there's a lot of federal land that's leased off to cattle ranching. And so what you have in parts of the countryside are dammed up small ponds that are used for water for the cattle. Migrants may errantly drink that water and become very sick as well. Once all of this is done, if, it, if there's some way that a migrant has come to the U.S. and is situated in some town somewhere, 
they also face a number of obstacles in getting a job because more and more there are requirements for the employers, first of all, to ask about citizenship status, and second, not to hire someone who is not able to prove their legal status. If they get a job, it's often under the table and um, without the same protection that citizens and legal residents are used to having, um, like minimum wage, the right to form a union, the right to a safe workplace. And so those are more obstacles. Children of immigrants can sometimes have trouble if their parents are undocumented, if they themselves are undocumented with accessing the public education system. If you are looking for informal work, such as the hardware stores, lawn stores, things like that, people often congregate in those sorts of places to offer yard work or to offer small-scale home construction work. The police may also know about these locations, and they may be looking to arrest people who are trying to get work that way. Do they have to pay protection money? You know, I don't know any specific stories about that particularly, but it's not hard to imagine. Is it also true that areas of agriculture in the the southern part of the United States would actually collapse if they didn't have those undocumented migrants there being paid a very small amount of pay? It would be very much hindered uh, if there were not the migrant labor that has shaky legal status. If people have shaky legal status, they're less likely to demand higher wages. The fact that there is a group of people that are illegalized by the system here in the U.S. means that there is a pool of workers who work for less pay. And so I suppose the farm industry, which has to work on on lower rates of profit, perhaps, possibly many of them would collapse. There's so many issues that you touch on because you have the situation here in the U.S. that there's so many small-scale farmers, and then there's corporate farms. The small-scale farmers would have a much harder time if they had to pay their workers more. Probably a corporate farm would be able to absorb those costs. You also have the policy in the U.S. of setting prices for certain crops so that it's, it's sort of an artificially low-cost market and also an artificially low labor market because agricultural workers, for the most part, don't have minimum wage laws. They're exempt from minimum wage laws, except for in California, where the United Farm Workers have had some recent victories on on the state level. Agricultural workers don't make much in general without the added situation for shaky legal status of workers. But you have the situation where I've heard Small-scale farmers from the south of the U.S. have actually said this in interviews, that if they had to hire U.S. citizen workers, for the most part, just the fact that those workers would be demanding higher wages because they can say, you know what, I can make more working at a store. I can make more money um, in any other 
occupation that exists, then those small-scale farmers have to pay what they have to pay to keep their workers. In essence, what you said is true. Many small-scale farmers have actually said that they would have to fold up. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. It's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Buddy Bell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and he's speaking about a cross-border march to Mexico, which he participated in last month. I'm sure that the stories of the discrimination and the abuse of migrants who cross illegally gets through to both Mexico and the other countries like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, yet people continue to come. What does that say about the situations that they're living in in those countries that they're willing to risk all to get to the United States? Well, it has to say everything about the fact that the place where they're coming from is so much worse, that it's actually a more responsible choice, uh, even for possibly a mother with kids, possibly even a pregnant woman. It might be a more responsible choice for her to try and make the crossing into the U.S. rather than stay in the situation back in the home country. The United States has been, in a large part, responsible for some of those conditions in countries like Central American countries and Mexico. We are responsible in a number of ways, but there is very little uh, acknowledgement of any responsibility. And so the immigration policy does not reflect uh, any acknowledgement of responsibility for conditions in the home countries, which could include gang violence, it could include narco-trafficking violence. It can include the collapse of the farming industry due to low-cost U.S. produce because the U.S. has made the cost of food artificially low by subsidies. That it actually it costs more to produce that crop than can be that crop can be sold for on the international market. This has caused many farm, small-scale farmers to go broke in Mexico and much of Central America. And other conditions in those countries could include just political violence, targeting of people who try to start unions, targeting of people who try to uh, change the political reality in the countries that they're from. It could include people trying to stop the expansion of mining projects, the expansion of dam projects, hydroelectricity, and any sort of other infrastructure which impinges on the ability of farmers to farm their land, the ability of indigenous groups to live on their land and subsist on their land. So if there's any group that organizes to try and stop a dam project or a mine or uh, increasingly in some countries a tourist town being built on the beach or something like that, if there's any people that try to organize to stop those projects, they're targeted politically by the established government 
um, which is gaining perks from those projects being built in the country. But the, the perks are mostly for people who are well off, and the jobs that are created are less numerous than the ones that are destroyed. And so you have many people without work as well, and they need to make a living somehow, and so they come to the U.S. Moving forward to the 8th of October, a great deal of preparation must have gone into organising this trans-border rally from both sides. What was that preparation? You know, I am actually not sure completely um, what all went into it because I wasn't part of the main organising team. Although I have done a lot of work with School of the Americas Watch in the past. School of the Americas Watch was the group that organized this trans-border rally, and they had to have a stage set up um, on both sides of the border. The gathering happened right at the wall, which is about 30 feet high, made of uh, iron columns that you can see through. They're spaced about six inches apart, so you can see through them, but you can't get through them. And there had to be a lot of organizing with local groups in Arizona. There were a lot of workshops that were held on both sides of the border. So in Mexico, there were community groups that presented workshops at a elementary school. And on the U.S. side, it was held at a hotel. I suppose there also had to be a lot of coordination with people that would be speaking on stage, with musicians, with spoken word artists, all of which were present at the Transborder Rally. I know Veterans for Peace did a lot of work in organizing the march on both sides of the border. So they had a march that actually started in the U.S. and the march crossed the border through the traffic lanes and then marched on the Mexican side before going to the stage. So that did take some coordination as well. But no people came from Mexico into the U.S. It was all one way. Well, so everyone who marched across eventually crossed back into the U.S. However, it wasn't as professional because, of course, it it takes a while. You have to go one by one and essentially have an interview with a customs agent for your passport. If you're not a citizen and you're a resident, it's quite a more extensive ordeal. Can you speak about maybe one or two of the people from Mexico who spoke at the rally and what their stories were. I wrote about Hector Barajas, who served in the U.S. military during the 90s and was then deported after being arrested for a certain crime that I don't know what he was arrested for, but uh, he was detained in uh, an immigration jail before being deported. This is an individual who lives in the U.S. his whole life, uh, joined the U.S. military, served for several years in the military, and then was deported. Uh, He's part of a group in Tijuana, Mexico, which runs a house for deported uh, veterans like himself. And he also runs uh, the Deported Veterans Support Network. And he spoke at the rally to 
try to tell people what's been going on. Uh, obviously, this is something that most people in the U.S. don't think about, that the immigration policy is it's so inflexible that even when there's a class of people, veterans, who are pretty much across the board venerated by U.S. society, popular culture, they're also not uh, respected in terms of getting any breaks uh, at all if they're found to be arrested, not even convicted, just arrested for any, any reason, they can be deported because you don't have to be a citizen to be part of the U.S. military. And residents, permanent residents, if they are arrested for any reason, can be deported. So uh, another person who spoke at the rally, I know that I, I wrote about Ms. Ana Morado, who is not from Mexico, but from Honduras. She's a mother who lost her son somewhere as he was crossing from Honduras trying to make it to the United States. She's an activist now trying to look for her son, trying to advocate for mothers like her. The many thousands of mothers who lost track of their sons and daughters because when a child goes, a young adult goes, tries to cross along the Devil's Highway, which is a colloquial term for the route from Honduras to the U.S. Like I've said before, there's so many hazards, there's so many pitfalls waiting for them. According to her, she thinks that her son disappeared somewhere in Mexico because he had been communicating with her and then communication stopped. And she was advocating for her son, trying to advocate for transparency. The U.S. and Mexico should be more transparent, should be putting more resources and trying to find people who have disappeared. They shouldn't be just trying to placate the family members, but actually putting resources into investigative work and searches for people that have gone missing. To cite an example from No More Deaths, the group that I was with, there was several times when family member reported someone missing in the border region, and U.S. Border Patrol might send a few agents to go and look for a day or so. Those agents might be right alongside No More Deaths volunteers, and then they quit after a day or two, and No More Deaths keeps looking sometimes with the family members of the people disappeared, and in some cases they found the family members' remains a week into it or two weeks into it. The Border Patrol, with all of their budget, federal money, doesn't see that as, as much of a priority, unfortunately. It's coming up to the end of Obama's time. He's been in power for eight years. Has he done anything to alleviate the problems for the people trying to get into the United States and for those that are already there? He has initiated Deferred Action Program for Child Arrivals, or DACA. And I think there's some parallel program for the parents of childhood arrivals that's more recent. So these programs allow people who have come to the U.S. as children and they don't have any arrests and they fit a number of other provisions. If they've 
satisfied all those conditions, they can be put on a list that says, we are not going to prioritize your deportation. So in other words, they're going to put priority on deporting people who don't fit all those conditions. Obama in his eight years has deported more people than any other president has been able to do in eight years. I think that this DACA program, and the other thing about it is it doesn't supersede Obama, so a future president can just decide to continue it or decide to not continue it, decide to use the list for other reasons. But the fact remains that there is a provision in there that says if you are arrested, you can't enjoy the uh, protections of DACA. It's rooted in double standard for citizens and non-citizens. So if you're a citizen of the U.S., you have to be convicted of any crime you're accused of before there's any sort of um, damaging measures taken against you. But for people who are not, all that there needs to be is an accusation and you can be deported. And this is even true for DACA recipients. So if you've already gotten DACA status and then you're arrested for something, your deportation case can then be made priority again. And such has happened with a friend of mine in Chicago who's been suing the government over this because she is an activist for undocumented people. And she went to protest and was arrested at the protest for advocating on behalf of people undocumented like herself. So this is a political act of speech. She stayed in a road blocking the road. She was arrested for essentially the equivalent of a speeding ticket. And that's the difference between her being protected under DACA and then having those protections stripped. So there's a lot of institutional problems here in the U.S., and it, it goes beyond any one president. I guess the, that's the main idea. However, Obama has done a lot of damage in addition to these small acts like creating a DACA list. In these circumstances and with the possibility of Trump, but not a, a big possibility, but I'd imagine Clinton will follow what Obama did. What's the next step for people trying to overturn these draconian laws? I think that there are many um, things that people are doing. People are working on the state level, and this is actually one uh, workshop that was given at the Transborder Rally that happened in October. State laws that reduce some of the obstacles that immigrants have to gaining driver's licenses, to gaining access to scholarships for college. There are measures to try and try to alleviate the uh, higher um, laws that actually this is another Obama initiative was the Safe Communities Act, which was to say that if someone is arrested by a local municipality, they can hold someone while the Immigration and Customs Enforcement does a review to see if they have legal status of presence in the country or not. But there are also local initiatives that they're trying to not chip away at that law or that directive, which, for example, in Cook County, Illinois, where I reside, 
the sheriff, Tom Dart, has refused to enforce that federal safe communities directive. There's also similar campaigns in other places for that for the other sheriffs not to comply with it. So local level, statewide levels, there's a lot going on. On the federal level, there's a lot of elections, I think, in this election cycle where immigration is a big topic. And so hopefully we're going to see, in the best of all worlds, Trump moving and actually a lot of people like him losing their seats because of increased turnout of the anti-Trump vote. And then we can get some kind of national immigration reform, uh, hopefully coming out of the next Congress. I think that that's actually a good possibility. We've seen more and more uh, reactionary rights activists becoming more active, but I think they're still quite a bit of a minority although a big vocal minority. You know, there's a lot of nationalist movements going on and gaining steam in Europe and the U.S., and I'm not sure if you have that in Australia. We do. But I think in the best of all worlds, that will be shown to be without much actual death. It may be a lot of luster. You've been listening to Buddy Bell from the Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who took part in a a march to the Mexican border last month. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. 1976 was definitely a good year. The year 3CR commenced, now 40 years of community radio broadcasting. But it was also the year that the Institute of Latin American Studies was created at La Trobe University and its academic members pioneered the study of Latin American society and culture in Australasia. Scholars have paid particular attention to the study of Mexico, Cuba, Brazil and the Andean region, especially Colombia and Venezuela and Chile as well as the comparative development of Australia and Argentina. There will be a 40th anniversary conference at the Institute at La Trobe in Bandura for the first few days of December. I spoke last week to the current director of the Institute, Dr Ralph Newmark, whom listeners to 3CR's Latin Update program on Sundays at 10.30, we'll be familiar with Ralph's presenting the program every third week. Ralph, just to clarify, Latrobe was the third university for Melbourne, opening in 1966. Ten years later, the Institute for Latin American Studies was created. This is the first university in Australia to offer courses relating to Latin America. Is that correct? Yes, in many ways. When you say Latin American Studies Department, certainly absolutely the first to have a Latin American Studies major and absolutely the first to have a Latin American Studies Institute. All right, well, let's go back to the late 60s and find out why. Okay, now this is a really interesting story. 
basically, as you well know, La Trobe University was the third university in Melbourne. Of course, a Melbourne university in the 19th century, and then Monash comes along, late 50s, opens, I think, about 1960-ish. Clearly, the northern suburbs needed a university, and this was a chance to have a, uh, a third university in Melbourne. Now, the founding fathers and mothers of the university wanted a uni that, in fact, did things that the other two didn't. I mean, this was an idea of having innovation and not just mimicking the big two. So they looked around for areas that were sort of lacking and a couple of particular uh, famous academics who were founding mothers and fathers, uh, but the Martins, these were two professors of sociology and history who basically fell in love with Mexico and decided that they would implement the idea of having different areas and they sort of started that. And what was the early institute? Well, the institute comes along in 1976. As I said, in that foundation period of the late 60s and early 70s, the idea was to start a major. As I said, it was very interesting because they decided Mexican. Mexico was decided as a sort of flagship of Latin American studies in at La Trobe. And they decided that, in fact, they would even coerce, to some extent, everyone in history uh, to partake in teaching Mexican history. And, of course, uh, many loved it, I think. You know, I mean, the great Inga Clendinen was one of those who embraced Mexico totally. I mean, she moved on later to become a very broad historian and major intellectual, uh, public intellectual. But her early work, of course, was on Mexico. Was there any influence of the times in Latin America where there was a lot of repression, Mm. there was a lot of repression, there were dictators, there was civil war? Well, of course, the late late 60s was was a time where sort of on two sides, I mean, clearly there'd been a military coup in Brazil in 1964, but also exciting developments because of the Cuban revolution emanating in 59 onwards. I mean, Australia is a country that, of course, where has our gaze always been? I mean, clearly for so many years to mother Britain to Europe. We were a European country, you know, on the periphery of Asia. Clearly, uh, once the Second World War comes along, we switch our focus to the United States. We'd never really looked. I mean, if you're in the US, Latin America is very much part of the scene for good and bad, (laughs) for Latin America's sake. But in Australia, the problem was there were, you know, large parts of the world that were basically ignored. And, of course, Africa being another one. And, of course, during that sort of 70s period where Whitlam comes in, uh, clearly, uh, ultimately, Keating and Hawke and that, they look to Asia. So, I mean, that's a beaut thing that, of course, now Australia has that gaze to Asia and so it should. But it still left this enormous gap. And I think this was part of the thinking of the Latrobe founders that in many ways it would do things the others didn't. As I said, uh, they heavily recruited. I mean, this was a time where people there were academic jobs, believe it or not. <laughs> Quite extra. I think they did. I've heard rumours, you know, in the early days they were recruiting like 30, 40 academics to come to Australia uh, and Australians. It was great days. And of course, at that period, some of the people, of course, I've worked with over the years, came to Australia. I can talk about them at some point, if you wish. You can talk about them now, if you like. Who were they? 
Clearly the most outstanding and I think, you know, the major contributions have come from a British, uh, originally a British academic, and that's, of course, the great Barry Carr, who, of course, for majority of ILAS Institute's life was the director, although it did pass around with others. The other one, of course, I think an earlier appointment was, of course, uh, the wonderful Rowan Island. Now, Rowan's an extraordinary guy because Rowan was, I think, the first appointment at La Trobe that was specifically a Latin Americanist, and that would have been in the very late 60s. And Rowan was a Brazilianist, and he's someone, of course, who I greatly admire and um, was one of my supervisors, actually. And uh, Rowan, of course, was a sociologist and worked on issues uh, ultimately in northeastern Brazil, one of the poorest areas of Brazil, and uh, I suppose you could say the father of Brazilian studies in this country. But then Barry and another fellow, the wonderful Steve Niblo, what the, the extraordinary thing about the appointments of Barry and Steve in the early 70s was that you know they recruited two very up-and-coming, dynamic Mexicanists. I mean, it's very rare, I think, to get two people in the same sort of area. Barry, of course, worked very much on uh, labor history and the history of the left in Mexico. Steve also very much uh, worked on U.S. foreign policy, but also um, the effect of that in Latin America, Colombia particularly. Uh, Steve's a very interesting guy. Uh, He's sadly passed away. But Steve was one of those generations of U.S. people who... Clearly, he was an economist. I think his PhD was in economics. Who went on the Peace Corps? I don't know. You, this is really interesting because the Peace Corps was established actually as a Cold War mechanism to send young Americans all over the uh, what you might call the Third World, developing world, to, I suppose, bring uh, well, set so an example of U.S. know-how and um, U.S. Uh, well values and developmental ideas. But the what was interesting was that for many of them, and Steve being a great example, it actually radicalised him. <laughs> That's a completely opposite effect. And of course, it moved him to saying, well, look, the systems that have very much been reinforced by, by both the United States and clearly the colonial agenda before that, or the, and then the neo-colonial agenda, actually were impoverishing people. So he came back amazingly, although not surprisingly, I suppose, as a very radical uh, academic, ultimately came to La Trobe. And so Barry and Steve and uh, Rowan uh, were very much part of these pioneering academics at at a university that was willing to be very different and innovative. I mean, a wonderful part of La Trobe's history, absolutely. Talk a bit more about Inga. Inga, uh, who's Australian, um, as I said, she really became part of, in the history department at La Trobe at that time, were a group of interesting academics, uh, historians, not just Latin Americanists, of course, but particularly, and these are people like Rhys Isaac particularly, and Inga, and um, Greg Denning, who later went to uh, over to Melbourne. But they, they were developing an ethnographic type of history, which was in many ways a history from below, a history that looked at people's everyday lives and um, almost an anthropological type of history. And they became known as the Melbourne School, even though because of the city of Melbourne, not uh, Melbourne Uni, because they were La Trobe. It was a very dynamic time. Now, Inga, who very interestingly got on that bandwagon of the, you know, 
teaching subjects that no other unis had. And so she was part of the team that were uh, teaching Mexican history. Now, of course, she wasn't a Mexicanist, but she very much got into it. And, of course, her early studies of Mayan, the conquest of the Mayans, the uh, Aztec civilization, a pathfinding. I mean, these are really famous books that uh, really uh, put Latrobe on the map and I think put Latin American studies on the map. She, of course, retired early due to ill health, but marvellously she sort of... she in her retirement, branched out into so many other areas. I mean, working on the Indigenous conquest of Australia, the Holocaust. I mean, these are areas that um, she became really a very respected uh, public intellectual. Sadly, she passed away about two, three weeks ago, and uh, her memorial at um, service at La Trobe was very moving, I can assure you, and uh, that people came from everywhere, really. In the early years, were there any people from Latin America... Refugees from the problems that were happening there that came to La Trobe? Well, clearly the, I think, a major point, and I think in everyone, anyone who knows and understands Latin America, was the 1973 coup in Chile. This, of course, had enormous ramifications, I think, for both the academy and also many people, clearly, from Chile. I think it might be said without going into too much detail, that clearly there was a sort of a, um, you know, differences of uh, perspectives, etc. What changed there really was that the Institute was established just after, in 76, a couple of years after. Now, of course, there was an enormous influx of Chilean refugees from the uh, Pinochet period, who were running away, of course, or leaving, who wouldn't, from the brutality of the Pinochet government. So suddenly, and I think, you know, you've got to remember, of course, before that, there were very few Latin Americans in Australia. I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, was that, you know, when you have large migrations from areas such as, you know, obviously Italians and Greek people who came to Australia after World War II and wonderfully enriched the country, sensational, uh, but not many Latin Americans. And as I said, there was sort of a different hemisphere there. So I would say that the Chileans who came after, uh, well, when Pinochet took over, had have enriched it. Later, there was another wave of uh, refugees from uh, Salvador, particularly. But now there are lots of Latin Americans from all over, particularly studying here. When were you introduced to La Trobe? Oh, well, my, <laughs> my personal story. Oh, very interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Latin American, I, in fact, my first career was a science microbiologist. I did my first degree at Melbourne University, honours degree in environmental microbiology and worked for the EPA uh, in the very early days, a long time ago. I, I, after a few years, felt that they weren't possibly doing uh, what I felt were needed to be done. Still a the Hamer government, I think, in those days, uh, in Victoria. However, something in my early life, I'd always had a fascination with thinkers and Aztecs, so it was that pre-Columbian thing. And so um, I took a one-way, bought a one-way ticket to Latin America, travelled around for a couple of years. Brazil particularly interests me. I came back to Australia and started all over again, in a sense. But the place that was the magnet for me, indeed, was Latrobe, because... If I wanted to study Latin America, the area I'd spent the last two years in, and absolutely fascinated, didn't want to go back to science for 
all sorts of reasons. And then, so basically, it was Latrobe. I had no choice. What right? year was this? About 1981. So I'd been on the road, really, from 78 to about the end of 80, so a couple of years there, and came back to Australia and uh, instead of wanting to go back to... uh, As I said, I didn't think that much had changed in terms of environmental uh, aspects in public policy. So off I went to La Trobe, um, started again, and, uh, of course, I walked into a university having been at Melbourne, and that was just happening you know it was so exciting you know there was a whole institute of latin american studies there were people like steve and barry and rowan in a sense a culture change from melbourne absolutely i mean really you know this of course was the point and in that period uh, the trobe you know the history department particularly had grown it was very big and it had those famous people that i've mentioned some of them uh i mean for someone like me it was like heaven <laughs> really great. And, of course, the also the issue was that the there was a Spanish language department there. Now, of course, must stress, Portuguese is the language I'm interested in because of Brazil particularly. And there was a, just a sensational, another sadly passed away, the great Wally Thompson, who was the foundation professor of Spanish at La Trobe. Now, this guy, I think, really is, again, is the other side of the language side of uh, we've been talking about history and social science, but uh, which is my area as such. But, of course, Latrobe was not the first to teach Spanish in Melbourne. Monash was that. But the Monash uh, Spanish was much more, I think, fair to say, orientated to Spain and uh, the peninsula uh, as opposed to Latin America. But, you know, they're still going as well, and good luck. And, in fact, now Spanish is taught in virtually every uni. Deacon's got it, Melbourne's got it. I mean, this is beaut. More the merrier. However, not everyone does teach history of Latin America, and I think Latrobe still we are the only ones that you know, strictly, if you're uh, interpreting as history, we do, we're the, uh, still the only ones. As I said, Wally very much uh, was just an extraordinary fellow. Uh, he was Northern Irishman who'd worked for many years at the University of the West Indies and uh, was a professor of Spanish in Jamaica which is very interesting, and also went to Guyana, where a place I'd spent some time myself. But he really helped me learn Portuguese because he was multi... He could even speak Quechua, which is the language of the Incas. Amazing fellow. And you graduated? Did you then go to teach? Uh, No, no. Well, what happened was, and this is like everything I say to the students, if you're passionate, you'll do well. I mean, here was I. I was a mature-age student. And uh, let's be honest, they're fantastic. Because <laughs> mature-age students know what they want. Work the, uh, the undergraduate stuff out of their system. If they've been to uni, or if they haven't, they've still worked out a lot of the um, younger aspects of um, you know, drinking and partying, etc. to <laughs> overdoing that. So they're there for a purpose, and I love them so much. And when I listen to this, when I went to La Trobe, it was 48% mature age. God. 48%. I mean, that's just incredible. So you can imagine the environment with people more older. T- I mean, I was, what, knocking 30 by then. As I said, they had Latin American studies. Uh, the environment was really exciting. A culture change, particularly, as I said. Just explain why there was 48% mature. Well, I think that the, they had a policy of letting people into the uni, and I think this still happens, although it went up and down. What killed much of this, of course, was HEX. Mm. But this was the, that the halcyon days, I think, of still the end of that period of the Whitlam free university education. I mean, when I went to go to the United States and to, told people I was in the US you know, during those periods too, that um, 
we had free university education. They couldn't believe it. When I told them we had Medicare, they couldn't believe it. When I told them we had you know, relatively restricted guns, they couldn't believe it. When I said we had unions that demanded minimum wages, they couldn't believe it. <laughs> I mean, the minimum wage in the US then was like, oh, dollar fifty. It was just extraordinary. Yes, the mature age, and you could also get into uni then through a, a mature entry scheme if you didn't do VCE or matriculation, it used to be called. HSC, whatever it was called. So a lot of people who actually didn't go to uni, can I just say some of the most extraordinary students I sort of mixed with in that period were women who had been forced out of school uh, in, you know, year four, uh, what we call it, like leaving or um, uh, they didn't finish school. Many of them because they were women, basically. Now, these women who were just extraordinary because the point was that and one couple of, no names, of course, uh, had told me that, in fact, their families put all their resources into the brother. <laughs> and the, the brother sort of, I mean, went nowhere, by the way. You know, even private school sort of thing, you know, ended up... Whereas these women who'd gone into sort of manual, probably secretarial-type work, when they got a go, a Guernsey, they all, these ones got PhDs and they were brilliant. Which just showed you, you know, this is this is why free education is so important. That you, and not even across, not just uh, the gender, but the social, the uh, class system as well. So we all do love Whitlam very much for that. Uh, I know it's gone back, and this is part of the problem. That the my point is that you should have free university education, but with a means test. I mean, clearly, you know, those people genuinely from very, very, you know, from wealthy families should pay something. Clearly. But it's, you know, it affects people right down with the scale. So we've got a lot of the matures. There are still some, but they struggle. I'm interested in the fact that the course could be described as a lot of lefties teaching <clears throat> students. The staff you're talking about. It's really interesting. I mean, I think the idea that universities are sort of, you know, hotbeds of crazy lefties, uh, cl- clearly that's a thing of the past. But at the time... Oh, at the time, well, yeah, yes, it could be said. I mean, I, I, without going into n- details, I mean, clearly in certain departments there were differences, and I tell you, there weren't all lefties, no, no, no. no. I mean, there was quite, you know, right across the ideological I'm thinking more of spectrum. your... Well, in our, our area, I mean, partly by the time I got there, it was uh, certainly of the left, absolutely. Well, I don't know whether I would have been there otherwise, let's be honest. I mean, clearly I... My view simply is if you go to Latin America and you are Latin and you know Latin America, you can't help be, you have to be of the left. I mean, the ones who aren't, unfortunately, are people who I think either don't understand what's going on there or are from families who are the winners. <laughs> what do you, do you believe that you could contribute? I, I've got to say, I, my moment of cathartic moment was because I'm backpacking, right? Um, my cathartic moment, and I should have mentioned this before possibly, was that I was in um, El Salvador and I wanted to go to, uh, I wanted to keep going south, but in between, this is 1979, there was a country called Nicaragua and there was a full-blown war going on between the Sandinistas and the Somoza government. Now, this was right at the end, this is before the Sandinistas won. And this is a, a tip for all travellers out there. Be careful if you're entering a war zone. Because my point was I didn't have a lot of money. And to fly over Nicaragua from 
Salvador or Honduras over to Costa Rica. Well, I mean, now it sounds ludicrous. It was $50, which I didn't have. <laughs> so I took the bus. Now, just inside the border, remember this is a war zone. I mean, you might call me a fool, and uh, in a way I may have been. But, in a, you know, when you're younger, I was much younger, you do take a few risks. And I was in a bus. In front of the bus there was a, a utility type or truck type thing, open truck, and a guy started shooting. Not at the bus, but he was shooting into the bushes. And I, as a young sort of Aussie-type guy, I'd never seen a gun shot in that sense. And I, well, hit the floor and, you know, shitting myself. (laughs) Metaphorically, I was really scared. I mean, I really thought I would not survive. Now, through my brain as I lay on the floor of the bus, I thought, well, look, if I was a Nicaraguan, I would have to be involved. You know, I'd have to do with with the Samosas or with the Sandinistas. I'm not a Nicaraguan. But, you know, it really brought what was going on there. And I knew, you know, I understood the struggle, etc. And I remember lying on the floor there saying, look, if I survive this and get back to Australia, because I didn't really know what was going on. I mean, I didn't know who was who. It was a very confusing situation. Uh, I just knew there was guns going off. I said, you know, pen is mightier than the sword. I could have got out of the bus and joined the rebels. I mean, that sounds sort of romantic, but, you know, it would have been nuts. I mean, I just... And I really sort of decided when I get back to Australia, I'm going to go back to uni, I'm going to learn about this, and I'm going to educate others about what I've seen here. And that was really the the reason I didn't go back to science. I mean, clearly I wasn't happy with the EPA at that point. So that that was the sealer, to be honest. And on the program next week, we'll hear more from Dr Ralph Newmark and... Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. And to conclude Tuesday Home Time for this week, historian and author Brian McKinlay. Can by sheer chance and, and a, a couple of events that changed our programs, and I've been looking at fascism for a long time in this program because it was one of the products or the post-war products of World War One. I. I had planned to do something on the United States and American fascism, which was much less well-known than its European counterparts, partly because, of course, it was opposed resolutely in the United States and uh, especially in the 30s by Roosevelt himself, a very radical, almost left-wing president by the standards of American politics. And Roosevelt and his remarkable wife, Eleanor, were quick to spot the origins of US fascism and opposed it resolutely. So the United States was different to Germany or Italy or other European countries where fascism took off in the 30s, in the 20s really, in the case of Italy. Oh, well, a number of interesting facts about this. Oh, if you think about it, from the time of the Civil War onwards, there was a fascist organisation and a very violent one, especially in the South, called the Ku Klux Klan. Now, we all know about it. And however ridiculous they look in their white uniforms and their peaked hats and their masks. They were a virulent, terrible organisation and they set out after the Civil War to rob blacks of any chance of taking up politics or public life by murdering, by lynching as it was called, any black who stepped out of line in the South, spoke up for any reason 
and their favoured method of, well, they lit bonfires and burned crosses and all that ritual, but they would attack men in their homes and sometimes in the street and would lynch them from a convenient lamppost or a tree. Even in the 1920s, lynching in the 30s, lynching was still common in the South of blacks who were picked out either because they were thought to have political ideas and be dangerous or they were thought to have accused in some cases of having a sexual relationship with a white woman. That was an absolute no-no to the clan. In many cases where that was said, the victim was not only beaten before being hanged, but was exposed naked uh, at the time of his lynching. And his body and the bodies of victims often left for days in a tree in some public part of the town. Some, even worse, were burned alive, uh, tied up to a post or tree and heaped uh, around with burnable uh, material and that was lit and they suffered a terrible death. The Ku Klux Klan was a public organisation. Everybody knew about it. It even held marches in Washington. And yet the governments of the southern states, which were all ruled by white racists, things hadn't improved much in the south, the blacks, were able to do this with immunity. And the federal government of the day took little effort to make any stoppage in the principle of lynching. Now, another thing that happened to the black community, many uh, young black men uh, with a, bit, a few bucks and, and a bit of determination to escape the horrors of life in the South made their way to big cities like Chicago and New York, where life was much more liberal. There was segregation, but there wasn't the persecution of blacks. And in the case of New York, a rundown working-class suburb called Harlem became famously a Negro suburb and still is today. And it became the centre in the 20s of another Negro contribution to American life, and that was jazz. Now, jazz came from New Orleans. It was a specifically local musical form. And many Negroes who were called up for service in the First World War formed military bands and went off with the American soldiers to France. Now, in Paris, when the war ended, they were stuck there for months and the French took jazz to their hearts. Paris being the most liberal of cities, there were no colour bars and segregation. And even down to this day, Paris has a network of nightclubs where you can go to listen to really good jazz. And all the great exponents of jazz singing, people like Lena Horne and uh, many of the male singers like Louis Armstrong, went off in the 20s and 30s as young people to make out a career in French music in Paris. But at home, uh, jazz took off. And it became fashionable in New York for the white elites. After a night out at a restaurant or somewhere or, or a nightclub, you went up in the early hours of the morning to Harlem where there were jazz clubs that played all night. Some of them, oddly enough, completely peopled by black jazz musicians, were still segregated and there was no blacks in the audience, although the players were black. But Harlem became a centre of 
Negro life, uh, writers and and singers and musicians all took up a safe residence in Harlem and the same happened in Chicago on the south side and other cities in the north too but Chicago and New York became famous for their jazz and it's interesting that the first black president Obama came from Chicago Uh, these cities became famous for their music and jazz took off around the world. Uh, a famous jazz band came here in the 1920s, presented jazz in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, and interestingly, Billy Hughes, who was Prime Minister and a nasty piece of work in any dimension, Billy Hughes got very angry when he found that some of these young black men had actually found Australian white girls as girlfriends. The band was here for months, uh, travelled round with them and lived with the black musicians. Well, uh, that saw them promptly bundled out of the country once Billy Hughes learned about it. But jazz took off here too, and it was one of the great world contributions of American Negro culture to music. Now, at the same time in America, in the 20s and 30s, while the Ku Klux Klan was very active, there grew up in the 30s another really fascist group called America First, Their great idea was uh, that, amongst all the other sort of fascist ideas about race and so on, they believed that the United States must not become involved in helping the struggle against fascism in Europe, where Hitler was now in power and where Mussolini was in power and where the Spanish Civil War was raging. This movement took up the view that the First World War had been a disaster for America, and a lot of people agreed with that idea. They established a nationwide body. Roosevelt, who was now prime, uh, president after 1932, Roosevelt and his wife, Eleanor, were both resolutely anti-fascist in their personal views and in their political activities. Now, into this comes a remarkable man called Walter Lindbergh, Now, Lindbergh was a pilot in the First World War, very young man, only an 18 or 19-year-old pilot, but a kind of war hero. And in 1926, he wound a place in history when he flew an aircraft, a twin-engine aircraft, which took about 18 or 20 hours to fly across the Atlantic from New York to Paris. Uh, It's a very famous event in the time. And Lindbergh was a national hero and an international figure. And he became involved in aviation in America for the rest of his life and became a very rich man. But in the 1930s, two events changed his life. Firstly, one of his children was kidnapped. The first real kidnapping for money to occur in the United States. People described it as the crime of the century. And the kidnapper made demands but in fact murdered the child in the first few days. Eventually he was caught. He was caught because of greed. He wanted the money and he had to make a place and the police tracked him down. And he was jailed and uh, later hanged. But Lindbergh, of course, gained great personal sympathy for that terrible event. At the same time, Lindbergh joined the America First movement and became its principal spokesman. After all, he was a celebrity. Americans love celebrities. And he was also a good orator. He spoke well and was pretty formidable. Uh, He and his family went to Europe 
for a time after the loss of the child who was kidnapped. And uh, in the 1930s, 34, they visited Germany and he became a great admirer of Adolf Hitler. He thought the Nazis were doing wonderful things in Germany. He hated Roosevelt and he hated communism with, a, with an absolute passion. And he thought Hitler and the Nazis would be just the people to destroy the Soviet Union. An idea Hitler shared, by the way. In the 30s, Lindbergh and his America First movement grew in size to hundreds of thousands of members. The basic premise was we must not be involved in any European war in any way at all. But by the late 1930s, as war loomed in Europe, Roosevelt was determined not to let the Nazis and the European fascists, Mussolini and others, succeed. But of course, in 1939 and 40, 1940 was a crucial year, because in June, to everyone's astonishment, the Nazis overran France, which had held out for four years in the First World War, and in six weeks they were in Paris. By June, France had surrendered and Britain was alone in Europe uh, fighting the fascist armies of Germany and Italy. And the Battle of Britain had begun. Roosevelt decided to do the unthinkable and he'd been in power for two terms. Now, he decided to break George Washington's principle that no president should serve for more than two terms. He decided to run for the third term. And he ran and won handsomely in November, an election that took place with the Battle of Britain and the Blitz on London in the daily papers. And American public opinion was very supportive of Britain and by now very anti-fascist. So Lindbergh and his America First movement were now pretty much on the edge of politics. Roosevelt went ahead with a scheme called Lend-Lease which involved leasing British islands in the Caribbean to the American Navy for defence purposes and the Americans then lending military equipment to Britain because an act of the Congress, the Neutrality Act, made it impossible for Roosevelt to do that, to give the British military equipment. But he got around it with Lend-Lease and 50 destroyers in the American Navy, old destroyers from World War I, were nevertheless dispatched across the Atlantic after the fall of France, loaded with armaments, uh, hundreds of thousands of rifles, to help the British Army if there was an invasion of England by Hitler. All of this brought the whole question of the ideas put forward by Lindbergh and his friends to the fore. Only four days before the Japanese attack in December 7 on Pearl Harbour, Lindbergh made a remarkable speech in which he sort of warned the fairly large and outspoken Jewish community in America, who had from the beginning been anti-Nazi, of course, and they did much to publicise what the Nazis were doing to the European Jews. He warned them, really, in a pretty blunt language, that they'd better shut up or circumstances might change in America and they might find themselves in a very uncomfortable position. This extraordinary speech, which was published nationwide, uh, really cut Lindbergh off from public opinion and was denounced by Roosevelt. Four days later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and four days after that, Hitler declared war on America. 
So Lindbergh and the America Firsters and all their fascist friends were now in a dire straits. Many of them were interned for the duration of the war because of their passionate support for Hitler, who was now at war with the United States. Lindbergh had welcomed Hitler's invasion in June 1941 of Russia, and he hoped that the Soviet Union would be destroyed by Hitler. Now, by December, when America was in the war, and after the horror of Pearl Harbor, which shocked Americans to the core, uh, Lindbergh was totally isolated. He was told to shut up and keep out of the public eye, which he did. Oddly enough, he was nevertheless a kind of patriot, and he offered his services in the training of pilots for the American Air Force, which he did during the Second World War. Roosevelt refused to allow him to become uh, an officer in the Air Corps, but as a private citizen, he did much to help young American pilots learning their trade. Lindbergh, after the war, went to Europe and was shown the Nazi concentration camps. He was now a senior official of Pan American Airways and travelled to Europe a great deal. He gave the inference that he had changed his mind about Hitler once he'd seen the concentration camps. He lived on until the 1970s, but he never again had any political life, if that's the word, in the United States. And the, the America First movement just disappeared. But it was always there, and I suspect some of its ideas have taken root again in the Tea Party, which, along with others has enabled Donald Trump to take over the Republican Party. By the way, one odd thing about Lindbergh, I did mention, I think, uh, his, the kidnapping of his son, and he and his wife had other children after that event. I think he had five children. But in the post-war times, when he went to Europe, in three different European cities, Lindbergh acquired three mistresses, three women. None of them knew each other or knew about Lindbergh's three women. And on his visits to Europe, he wrote them very impassioned love letters too. One woman came forward later with 150 letters he'd written her. And he had children by each of them. I think all told he had eight children by these three women on his frequent visits to Europe. He lived with each of them for a short time and had, in the end, three European families, as well as an American family. And this only came to light after his death, when a German historian set out to write a book about him and found these astonishing facts. So Lindbergh was a remarkable figure, whether you like him or not. That's the sort of core of the American fascist movement, of which he was the central figure, the Republican Party after World War II was relatively moderate. Roosevelt held power, and the Democrats under he and later Truman, because Roosevelt died in office in 1945, having won a fourth term, a remarkable event in American history. And the, the Democrats were in power for 20 years, from 1932 to 52. And Roosevelt set up the framework of a welfare state, pension scheme, really a, a superannuation scheme, and you had to be in the workforce to get into this, but tens of millions of Americans did. He never got around to a national health scheme, though he believed one 
was possible, and after World War II, when Truman became Democrat president, Truman attempted one, but uh, it, it was fought bitterly by the medical profession. Roosevelt, however, set up other social services of one kind or another and put a great deal of money into public works to create employment. And, of course, America survived World War II in great financial and, and military and industrial state and was by 1945 the world's greatest power. Russia, which was to be its competitor during the Cold War, had suffered the loss of 22 million people and terrible damage to all the cities of European Russia was really an economy only about a third of the size of the Americans. So the Cold War, uh, as it stood, was never never an issue of uh, Russia overtaking the United States in any way at all. The Democrats lost power in 52 to Eisenhower, who was a very uh, a great friend of Roosevelt's. Eisenhower had been a wartime general, and they got on famously. And I, Eisenhower was no right-wing, ra rabid right-wing Republican. And then, of course, that led to the Kennedy administration, and Kennedy and later Johnson kept up Roosevelt's post-war and wartime, pre-war and post-war uh, social services and other matters that Roosevelt brought. And, and famously, Kennedy and Johnson took up the battle in the South for equal rights for Negroes. And then along came Martin Luther King, who created the first great Negro political movement, which, along with Kennedy and Johnson, saw a series of bills giving the Negroes equality and taking great effort against all sorts of racist treatments in the South. Followed by Nixon. Now, Nixon was a crook in the end, lying and uh, deceiving about the Watergate issue, but Nixon wasn't a far-right uh, man in many of his personal views. And that was true, really, of um, Reagan and others. But in the <clears throat> 1990s, about the time of the two-term Clinton presidency, th there emerged the, a movement called the Tea Party. Now, the Tea Party drew into its ranks all the nutty right-wing loonies in the United States, and there were a great many of those who had ideas about race, about white men being superior to any black man, about the inferiority of blacks, about the inferiority of women, I might say. A, a daring idea, given the current feminist movement, which is so widespread. And all of these groups coalesced to form the Tea Party, and called because of a, an event during the American War of Independence, what was known as the Boston Tea Party, which was a rebellion. These people initially pinned a tea bag to their lapel. Now, the Tea Party virtually took over the Republican Party and brought all these loonies from the right into it, and they have made it possible for Trump to seize control of the Republican Party. Given the cowardice of Republican leaders, people, decent men like John McCain, who've spoken out against Trump, but they weren't able to stop him taking over the party. And so we have a remarkable situation tomorrow 
in which one of the major American political parties is unelectable in terms of its quasi-fascist ideas. Uh, who would have thought this possible? And the Republicans, of course, many of them, know that it condemns them to a long time in opposition if they lose tomorrow because the Hispanic population, a, a very rapidly growing population, is absolutely wedded to the Democrats now after Trump's attack on the Hispanics, which has been a major feature of the election, as well as attacks on other groups like blacks. So the United States is poised on a moment in its history uh, hopefully we'll see Trump defeated and Hillary, with all the faults, will deal a great blow to this extreme right-wing movement about, about which she now speaks openly and publicly. It is a, an absolutely critical moment in American history. With great foresight, a famous musician, Woody Guthrie, who was very anti-fascist and pro-Roosevelt, said in the 1930s, when fascism comes to the United States, it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying the cross. Could you find a more appropriate remark for the present day? Probably not. That was um, historian and author Brian McKinlay, and everyone seems to be looking forward to tomorrow, but I'm not. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, so it's bye for now. <laughs> 